For those of you who are new with us, we are pressing forward in a series in the book of Proverbs. And this week, and then in a few weeks, we'll be covering the topic of work. Um, my family and I will be, well, half of us will be away for about a couple of weeks starting next week. And so there will be, we'll be blessed to have a, a couple of speakers here join us. But so this week, we'll look at the enemy of work, which is laziness, sluggardliness. And then in a few weeks, we'll talk about work itself and the depth of work. So first of all, I think when it comes to work, there are many different misperceptions about the Bible's understanding of work. Work is not a product of the fall. It's not a result of sin. I know some of you feel that way, but it isn't true. Work pre-existed sin, and perhaps to your, um, how shall I put it, to your frustration, it will continue even in heaven and on the new heavens and the new earth. We're told in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So that's before sin entered the world, there was work. And the problem with work is not that there is work, but that there is frustration and exasperation and trial and difficulty and hardship and pain when it comes to work. So following the fall of Adam and Eve, Moses describes work this way in Genesis chapter 3, that the ground was cursed, that no longer would Adam simply till the ground and the fruits would come flowingly, but rather it would now come with much difficulty. There would be, if you've ever gardened before, there would be parasites. And sometimes, for whatever reason, the scent, the seed doesn't suddenly sprout. It's, it's just difficult. The Bible talks about thorns and thistles being a result of work now, or by the sweat of your face, Adam, you will now experience work. So work is not in and of itself evil. It's actually good. And I think you'll see this one day, especially when you retire, or some of you are in that place or approaching that place and the thought is, well, if I just retire and now do whatever I want and just simply sit back, relax, watch TV all day, everything will be great. But we all know that that often leads not to a, a flourishing life, but in actuality, hardship and death comes quite quickly. And that happens so often to so many people who retire. They no longer find productivity in their life. And so we're going to see... Um, especially in a few weeks, how that productivity in work has such a significant role as to who we are. And it's not just about careers or what you do to make money, because we're working all the time, whether you realize it or not. But today we'll focus very particularly on this enemy of work. It's called laziness, and it's the enemy of worthy work. And we'll look at the characteristics of this type of laziness through the book of Proverbs. First, there's slackness. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. The word slack refers to limpness. 
I remember one time shaking hands with somebody, and you you sort of can get a very very small picture of what a person's like just simply by their handshake. Often, most of the time, when shaking someone's hand, they're trying to prove themselves, and so they give that you know where it hurts you to shake their hand. I don't know if you ever shook someone's hand that was incredibly limp, slack. I I did. I've never shaken someone's hand like this. I mean, it just felt like this. And when you shake someone's hand when it's like this, just thoughts come into your mind. What's wrong with them? What are they trying to project? What are they trying to portray? It's so odd. And because the slackness leads to uncertainty. The one commentator describes it, the slackness, to the slackness of a bow, you know, like a bow and arrow. When you pull the bow back, if there's enough tension, it draws the arrow back and it allows the arrow to shoot forward at rapid speeds. It allows a hunter to hunt their prey. But when a bow is slack and the string is slack, there's no danger. There's nothing that, there's zero effort. And so you take a bow, you stick it there, and if you expect it to somehow fire, it's just going to fall to the ground. Think of a tightrope walker. When there's a slack rope for a tightrope walker, that's their death, especially if it's high up, right? So you need tightness. You need tension. There has to be this sense of, you know, just this real sense of tension and power. This is the contrast the Proverbs writer is making. A slack hand, there's the slack hand and there's the diligent hand. The hand of the diligent makes rich. And so... The lazy person is negligent when they're slack, irresponsible, careless. It's not just that. It actually leads to death. Over time, when there's a laziness, it's a death. But the diligent hand, diligence in Scripture is often thought of as faithful, persistent. And there's a perseverant aspect to it. They don't give up. There's pursuit. And so they gain much. And the biblical word to describe that type of persistence is called faithfulness. Much is said about a person who is faithful. It's the good and faithful servant who enters the father's rest, unlike the lazy sluggard who dug their treasure into the ground. But what does persistence look like? I I think it's different than what most of us think of because we tend to think of big results. And you might say, wow, that's because of hard work. But, you know, it started somewhere. There was a book that I read recently called Tiny Habits by behavioral scientist B.J. Fogg. And in it, he studied common traits of people who struggle with addiction, poor habits, ineptitude, failures. And what he found is that so often was the case where these people tended to have big dreams And it was sort of the New Year's resolution mentality of life. You promise yourself and you say, I'm going to lose 30 pounds. Or I'm going to read the whole Bible in a day. (laughs) Or I'm going to pray for five hours. Or just some sort of big commitment. We all know how that works. Make that New Year's resolution. And maybe you diet or exercise or whatever it might be for a couple of days. And you work out really hard. And then after about four days maybe less, it's gone. Well, his whole point is that actually it's doing the small things 
on a regular, habitual basis that ultimately leads to character change. I mean, obviously, this is from a non-Christian perspective. It, we assume in, this, in our context that the Holy Spirit is, does the change. But there is something to take account our responsibility. And so the example he gives is that he wanted to lose some weight. And so what he decided to do is every time he went to the bathroom, he would do two push-ups right afterwards. And he just started doing that. And it became a habit. He started doing it, and he kept doing only two push-ups for about a month. The temptation is after you start doing two push-ups, you think, I think I could do four. But that's sort of our tendency is we start ramping up way too quickly and to the point where we say, I'm going to read one verse of the Bible, say, for one week. And then we say, oh, that went well. Let's go two weeks, and I'm going to read now one chapter. We jump up, or one whole book of the Bible, and just suddenly we just give up. His whole point is the steadiness and the consistency and persistence of doing something even very small over time will lead to dramatic change. And I do think that we see this in Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 11, as we quoted last week. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. There needs to be diligence, and diligence is a character trait. It's, it's increased over time in faithfulness. So in order to really see productivity and fruitfulness, there has to be the character behind it that allows that to happen. I think that's why so many of us parents, when we want to see dramatic change in our children, we give sort of big picture things and say, you need to clean your room. And you might say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like a big picture thing. But if their room is a pigsty and they've been doing that their whole life and we're saying, you need to clean your room now. And we get into all these angry fights and they just have created a, a lifestyle, a slack lifestyle. And it's not going to change by just suddenly doing it once. And all, we all know how it works. It just goes back after a few moments. No, there has to be a character change, a change of the way they live. And that comes with diligence, faithfulness, persistence, doing something regularly every day for a long period of time. Diligence is this, but the slack person, they just don't ever try. Or they have that big view and then start and stop and give up. And so everything for the slack person is, no, I can't do it. No, it's too hard. Here's a big one. No, I tried that already and it doesn't work. And the way they tried it is they went out like a big flame and then it was gone. That's sort of how it works, right? That's the slack person. They always lose sight of the persistence of life and the perseverance and how significant that is in actually producing, affecting change. So if you want to read scripture and you're not doing it regularly, I challenge you to read one verse a day for, I don't know, a month. And you might say, after reading it for maybe one week, you'll say, I think I could read more than one verse now. Maybe, yes, but it is better to read one verse every day for the rest of your life than to read 20 verses or two paragraphs or a book of the Bible and then stop for the rest of your life. 
And that's far too often the problem is that we are not consistent with our lives. We're not faithful. If you want to grow in your prayer life, as soon as your feet touch the ground, go to your knees and say a one-minute prayer. Actually, no, not one minute, one sentence. All you need to do is say, God, thank you for this day. I praise you. May you be glorified on this day. John Stott, I think I've shared this story before. He always says the glory of Patri. He just, as soon as he gets up, he goes on his knees on his bed and he says, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. And he does that every day. And he did that all his years, decades. And that exercise sort of led to the overflow of many longer prayers. Anytime you want to see change, seek diligence, faithfulness, persistence, perseverance over the small things. Look at scripture and see how often it speaks of that. But again, the problem is that we get so impacted. We say, I want to, I want to really do something dramatic. I'm going to read the whole Bible, like I said, in a month. We get to Leviticus and then we give up. No, that's not the way. We become slack that way. Actually, it leads to laziness, not diligence. So I challenge you to guard against slackness, the first characteristic of our sluggardly heart. And by the way, I I forgot to mention this, is that all of us are sluggards. I don't care how diligent you are. Um, And I know when I look at this room, I know a ton of you are. That's the last word I would use to describe you as a sluggard. But I'm talking about not just at your workplace where you make money, but it's also household chores, spiritual faithfulness, evangelism, spend time in God's word, uh, just getting off our couches every once in a while, exercise, uh, relational faithfulness, such as pursuing people who are new or who are strangers for the sake of Christ. How many of us are 100% diligent in all those areas. If you are, this message is not for you. But I have a feeling that all of us struggle with sluggardliness at some level in some way. So first is slackness. Second is comfort. Proverbs 26, 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. You know, we are slaves to comfort, aren't we? We are. And some of us have spent a lot of money to make our bed very comfortable. It's, it's so comfortable that we can't get off of it. Notice that the comparison is that as a door turns on its hinges, what's important to notice about that door is that a hinge sort of locks the door in place. You don't have a door off its hinges sort of lying out somewhere it's limited to the hinge. And so the door can only go so far on the hinge. It stays where it's comfortable. And so the sluggard is comfortable in their bed and they can't get off of it. And there's a a button on our clocks called snooze. That button maybe is pushed so many times and we, we have these virtual 
straps that tie down our eyelids and our limbs because our bed is way too comfortable. The sluggard also, in this sense, doesn't want to be in uncomfortable positions. Think of the many different ways that we are uncomfortable in this world. Again, right after worship ends, you're going to go out there and you're going to see a bunch of people that you have, you've never talked to, right? It, it's uncomfortable to talk to new people. I, I challenge you parents, it's one important tool that you have to actually train your children in. I remember with our kids, we would have, because they're like me. When I was growing up, I was, I was naturally fearful and shy. And so with my kids, they're exactly the same. They were the same. And we would have role-playing conversations with them. I'd say, okay, pretend I'm a newcomer and you are or whatever, or I'm someone you don't know, and let's have a conversation. They're like, come on, Dad, I don't want to do it. No, we're going to do this. We're going to practice. It, you have, if your child is not comfortable, do not settle with, well, that's their personality. What can I do about it? No, there's a lot you can do about it. So, but it's not just your children, it's you. So you're going to go right out. You can see people you don't know. And you're going to think, oh, it's so uncomfortable. I tell you, every week I battle this. But laziness says, ah, I'm just going to go into my corner and take out the... This is the weapon or the, um, the weapon of a sluggard. Someone who loves being a sluggard is the phone. It puts them into their little security zone, you know, the hinge of their life. Where if as soon as they hit an uncomfortable position, take out the phone and pretend they're doing something important, but they're looking at the scores. As long as I don't have to talk to anybody and be by myself, I feel really good about myself and I'm secure. It's the hinge of the sluggard that can never move away from it. It's limiting, right? That's what a sluggard is like. They're comfortable and they, they always have to be comfortable. Now here, I'm addressing people who are not in this room, but who are watching. Some of you have not come to church in a long time and used COVID as a reason because you're in your pajamas right now. And you got out of your bed, walked out, all right, time to turn on YouTube. I have to do my duty. And I haven't seen you in a long time. I don't think there's a ton of you. It's maybe a few of you. Some are genuinely, for whatever, uh, for medical reasons, can't come. But that's a very, very small view. Most who are watching right now have turned into a sluggard. And I'm calling you out. I'm saying you need to be here because your, your soul is being affected. Your children's souls are being affected. So that sound you hear every Sunday there's a door turning on its hinges. I hope you realize that. It's for you. Hopefully we will see you here next Sunday. So that's for a, a very specific group of people. Next, the sluggard is always tired. Always tired. Always has problems with their body so that it just keeps them from doing anything. They're weary. Proverbs twenty six fifteen. the sluggard, I love this, the sluggard buries his dish. He eats his food, dish in hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> I mean, what a picture of utter, utter laziness. 
There are many different forms of this type of weariness. There's physical weariness. I think some of us are experiencing that. I have, I have like five different things wrong right now with my feet. And, you know, I don't know if this is the curse of being in, in the, you know, the mid fifties and having all these problems, but it's so tempting to just constantly talk about that and think about that and have that rule my life and say, that's going to determine what I do and who I interact with. And also, I remember when I first took the Myers-Briggs test, I scored an extreme high extroversion. I mean, I was on the top end. And I remember when we first started the church and after worship, after preaching, and I would do what I did today, lead worship, preach. And then right after I'd be going, who do we hang out with today? How many people are we going to, and we'd spend, and I, I would run my family around, run them ragged. Now, as soon as this day ends, I go, where, I, I need to go home and go back to my phone, <laughs> my friend. You know, it's, it's so tempting to feel that way, isn't it? To feel tired. And some of you are now, you were once, and I won't call you out, but I, some of you I have known since you were in college. Okay, that's a very few people. And now you've become very old, and I'm not even looking at people like that. And that, that happens. I'm thinking, what happened to us? That's called excuse. It's called weariness, the weariness of the sluggardly soul. Everything is, I'm tired. I can't do this. You know, I just... Some sluggards are spiritually tired. They're always struggling. They're always dry. I'm so dry. Whenever someone's dry, it's rarely because of other people. It's because of their own sluggardness. They're literally dragging their feet spiritually. Next, the sluggard is delusional. Chapter 26, verse 16 of Proverbs. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. That's the problem of sluggards. They're full of themselves. They always think they're right. Always want whatever they want is what's most important. And that's what they pursue. And anything else, they just say, it's not important to me. They try to focus on that. And it's, it's a terrible thing. It's what leads to sort of this mentality that a lot of uh, young men, for example, and this happens in places like Japan and in the United States where they, they grow up and they're, they never leave their parents' home. Never. They can barely work. They stay at home, play video games all day. They smoke pot. They live under the care of their parents. That's not just being a sluggard, that's being a fool. And that is how impactful that is. Next is the sluggard is deceptive. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. The question is, were there lions in biblical times? The answer is rarely. Rarely were they in the streets. They were around, but Rarely did a lion come where people were. They were probably as often seen as, say, a mountain lion is in our day. Are there mountain lions sometimes that show itself in Danville, San Ramon, some of the wooded areas? There are. But imagine if 
every day someone says, I'm not going to work because there's a mountain lion outside and I got to protect my family. And so the lazy person will do and say anything to maintain his laziness because he wants it all. He wants to be lazy, but look like he's not lazy. And so, for example, if the person wakes up and you know says he has a meeting, meeting is at a certain time, and he set the alarm clock at a certain time to be able to shower, get ready, prepare for himself, but there's, again, that good old snooze button, or there's Alexa that you could say snooze, and, and they're snoozing, snoozing, and then they finally wake up, they rush out, they get to work, there's that meeting, and they're 10 minutes late. And everyone's looking, saying, Where, why are you late? And they say, oh, there was so much traffic. It was so bad, and there was an accident. But of course, that's a lie. And then the next time, it happens again. They're late again. Oh, what happened? Oh, my, my mother-in-law was sick, and I had to take care of her. Oh, okay. And then another time, and there's another excuse. It's not an excuse. It's a lie. So the sluggardness leads to deception, and it never changes. It's the heart of the sluggard. Imagine if they weren't deceptive. They told the truth. Well, what happened? Why are you late? I was really tired, and I, I just wanted to sleep a little longer. Sorry. Okay, I understand. Because we all do that. Next meeting, they're late again. What happened? Well, actually, I slept in again. Oh, oh, okay. Well, let's not do that anymore, okay? Next meeting. Why are you late? I slept in again. Sorry. Uh, there's something wrong with you. I don't know if we should have this person working for us. Do you see how that sluggard heart, if we're actually honest, it really has some real consequences to that. And so we are deceptive. There's always a lion outside for the sluggard. Always. Because the last thing we want to do is look like a sluggard, but we want to act like one. He who is diligent does not live this way. But we, we are, the sluggard is always tempted to think this way. And not only that, may I say, and here I address parents, is that we also empower and enable our children to also be sluggards. And the way we do that sometimes is by just simply by providing everything for them. We do everything for them so that there's no responsibility. I remember when our kids were young and we started giving allowance. And uh, you know, I never thought of that would be a bad thing at all until I spoke with somebody and I, I said, hey, do you give allowance? And they said, no. And I said, what? And they said, why not? I mean, I said, why not? And the answer was, I don't believe that children should be given an allowance for something that they do simply because they're a part of the family. Sorry, kids. Sorry, students. I might be taking your allowance away here. <laughs> and and uh, I thought, that's very interesting. And they said, you know, if they wash the dishes, it's because they're a member of the family. It's their responsibility. It's just simply being a member of the family. And I thought, that is a great point. Sorry, kids. No more allowance. <laughs> but 
if you wash the car, if you do something, if you mow the lawn or do something that we think is outside the boundaries and just sort of the extra mile, yeah, here's $20, here's 50, whatever. I mean, but otherwise, no, taking the trash, you do not get paid for that. (laughs) That's just being a part of the family. And we have to instill within our children this connectedness between responsibility and action and consequence. If that's not there, there's always a lion outside. And there is something to be said for kids to be working, um, to have a job, to have the responsibility of work. That it's not just, oh, I'm just going to buy a car because you can afford to do so. Or I'm going to just buy you any sorts of clothing, whatever you want, Brandy Melville, or I think I said her name right, (laughs) whatever store or whatever it might be, that there's a place for them to actually work and pay for it. Here's the thing is that I think for many of us as parents, our goal is I want to work really hard. I'm going to save up, have a 529, pay for their education, their college education. I don't pay for anything and therefore... They can just be set on the course for, just get all A's. That's all I want from you. But know that you're instilling a value. The value is as long as um, you want it, you can get it for free, and you don't have to do anything about it. Uh, there, there is so much done in terms of statistical analysis and studies on this topic. The director of college finance at Bright Horizons College coach, Shannon uh, Vascalonis, she says this, in typical circumstances for the average student, it's great for them to hold down a part-time job. Students who work a moderate amount of hours, up to 15, maybe 20 hours a week, those students actually on average do better in school than students who don't work at all. This is regarding college students. And again, study after study has shown that those students who work in college and actually take uh, a, a portion of paying for their education, it actually leads to more productivity and better results. And the reason is because they're building the diligence factor into their lives, the, the sense of responsibility and ownership of what they buy and what they do. And so before you go out and say, here's a bunch of cash, do whatever you want, know that the prodigal son got that and the results weren't so great. And a lot of times that just leads to a lack of responsibility, not just over their college years, but for life. So there is something to say to build that type of character in the earliest of years. And so it starts young. I mean, it could start in elementary school, high school, especially if your kids are not actually being productive in high school and earning their way to some extent, the habits that they're forming are being lost that should be shaping their character and development. Next is a um, a sluggard is a quitter. Look at Proverbs 15, 19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. According to Isaiah 5, 5, a farmer surrounded his vineyard with a bunch of thorns, hedges of thorns to protect it, especially from small animals and intruders. But if an animal was persistent enough or an intruder was persistent enough, they can figure out a way to even get through the thorns. You know who it protected against most was the sluggard. 
See, the sluggard would see the thorns from afar and say, ah, forget it. Remember the club? The protected cars, the big red club you put on your steering wheel? Okay, I'm only speaking to some of you here. (laughs) Today, it's the catalytic converter protector, shield protector on a Toyota Prius or something, some sort of hybrid, right, that goes under. I, I was talking to my mechanic, and he was saying, it probably takes a thief about an hour to remove that plate under, in the undercarriage of a car. But that hour is enough to be a deterrent. And so the, the thorns was a deterrent, but it only deters sluggards because this is the idea of a sluggard. They see an obstacle and their instinct is to automatically give up. It's too hard. It's too cumbersome. It's too difficult. It takes too much time. That's the mentality of a sluggard. Too hard, too difficult, too much time. Oh, another one, too boring. Whenever it's boring, the automatic assumption is, I'm going to give up. Students, I'm not just talking about studies. It might be, I remember having this job. It was, okay, I had a few tedious jobs. One was in our library, uh, in the seminary. I had to wash the walls. The walls were white. They were mostly clean. I felt like they gave me this job just because to give me a job. So I had to wash the walls. Okay, and the reason I took this job is my wife was the librarian, or who she was my girlfriend at the time. But that is the truth. So washing the walls wasn't so bad after all. But I remember it was an incredibly tedious job at the time. I also had an inventory job. It was literally counting screws in a box. Because the box would say 100 screws, and I have to go one, two, three, uh, one, two, three. It was tedious. But those small little jobs, you'd be surprised as to what it does. So when I'm preparing a sermon, if I'm going through exegesis and thinking, thinking it through, that tediousness comes to play. And so what you want is this idea that no matter how boring, how tiresome, how challenging, you're not going to instinctually say, I give up. It's too hard. My friends, that is a sluggard. But that's also when it comes to reading books. If I were to give you a book to read, that's a a book that's about Christ. Is your instinct to say, read the first two pages and say, ah, too hard. Close it up. That is a sluggard's heart. And you have to recognize that that's why we're not growing. If I'm opening scripture and I don't read it because, oh, I don't understand Leviticus, rather than saying, hey, let me get a commentary. Let me ask questions. Let me try to figure this out. The sluggardness in us says, ah, forget it. It's too hard. I want to pursue it. If it's about growing in relationship, persisting with people who are difficult people sometimes, and maybe they let us down, we press forward because we trust the Lord. We don't have a sluggard's heart. I know pastors who move from ministry to ministry, three years, and they go to the next church. You know why? Because for those first three years, it's actually pretty good. That's the honeymoon stage. Then the first conflict comes, and your instinct is to run. And it makes sense. It's hard. You might have experienced this in your workplace. Uh, How many times we're looking at LinkedIn as soon as a job is hard. As a Christian... As one who is righteous in Christ, we respond differently. We see, as the Proverbs writer says, a level highway. It's smooth. Even though it's difficult, it's smooth to us because we are in Christ and we continue pressing on. We walk. 
There is a gospel response to this laziness. If we're honest, we all struggle with the sluggard heart. We're all self-centered. We all love comfort. We all in some way feel entitled. How often do we actually feel like quitting? Like I said, you can read a book on theology and be committed to it and say, I want to read about Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Great book. But just start trying to read that book. You'll want to quit reading it because it actually has depth to it. It requires diligence, not sluggardliness. And so how many of us have quitted reading good books or all sorts of things? How many of us have failed? How many of us have looked for escape from trial and diligence or shortcuts, found things boring? It is so perverse, pervasive in all of us, the sluggard heart, but there is freedom from this heart. We are told in Genesis 3 that God cursed the ground because of sin. After that, whenever there's work, now there's thorns and thistles. There's hardship. There's frustration. But that's not the end of the story. Remember Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus bore the curse of the ground for us. How does this happen? First of all, he took the thorns that come with work and he bore those thorns on his head. And here's the problem with our work and our labors. We place our identity, hope, and security in our work, our job. We want to look good. We want the reputation of being a hard worker or successful or intelligent or advancing. We want to be promoted. We want to say that we are somebody and it is our work. It's not just careers. It's have, raising certain types of children. It's having a certain type of home where someone enters and says, wow, you are special. See, so much of our lives is based on the hope that our security, our worth, our value, our identity rests in our work. And anyone who has gone down that path knows this. You've experienced emptiness from that. It's left you empty. Because somewhere along the way, sometime, one, work, at least the career type of work, no matter how successful you are, Eventually, someone's going to say, you're too old. We're looking for new, new blood. And your skills, you are a computer software, like the leading Fortran software engineer. COBOL was your language. What does it matter now? You know, eventually your work, no matter. And it's the saddest thing when people who are 60, 70 years old say, their whole conversation is about themselves. Well, when I was 30 years old, I did this and did this. And, and you see, they're trying to relive their life and gain favor from the world because that's their only hope, their only security. Jesus, when he bore those thorns, he bore the thorns of our labors. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me all who labor all who work and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will be your security. I will be your satisfaction. I will be your reputation. I will be the one who determines whether you are a success or a failure. And I promise you, my thorns 
prove that you are a success. And so now when you work, regardless of your work, whether you are a custodian, whether you are a gardener, whether you are a teacher, whether you are a scientist, an entrepreneur, you are successful because of Christ, because you are his son, his daughter. He's your identity. And out of that comes the joy of our labors, regardless of what field of work we're in, whether you're at home caring for your family. Our identity is no longer built on exasperation and frustration based on whether people like us and our work product or not. No, we are special always. May I quote Tim Keller on this topic because he's so insightful. He says this, work for Jesus, don't work for anybody else. Do your work for him because on the one hand, you won't overwork because you know he loves you already. But on the other hand, you won't underwork because he's always looking and you want to give him the best work you can do because he gave you the ultimate work, the finished work on the cross. When you work for Jesus, you're always satisfied. You never underwork, you never overwork. You just work for him. And all you care about is what he thinks of you. And you know, if you're in Christ, he has such a high view of you. He gave his own life for you. Sluggards avoid work at all costs, and in the end, they're miserable and empty. But worthy workers, when you work for Jesus, you always find work worthy, regardless of the work, regardless of the output, regardless of what anyone else says. May you always see his thorns that puts you on the highway where there are no more thorns anymore in your work. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, you have been so faithful to us. The work of the cross is the means by which we have our assurance of identity. You love us not because of what we do. You love us because of what you have done. You're not looking to us to work for you. No, you want us to simply trust you and to be in relationship with you because you've done the work. And when we believe this to be true, I know, O oh Lord, that no matter the job that we are in, whether we are going out, staying at home, um, whether we're in relationship with others, whether we're planting our gardens, fixing our cars, whatever we're doing, renovating our home, if our eyes are fixed on you, O oh Lord, we will not be frustrated. We will not be so concerned about what people think about us. We'll already have rest because of Jesus, your shed blood for us. The finished work of the cross of Christ is our hope. I pray that as we come to this table, O oh Lord, that we come surrendering all of our labors, because we know that when we come to you, we have an eternal rest. And isn't that we place our hope? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.